please be seated. We return this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, picking up in verse 36. And we'll be reading through chapter 8, verse 3, found in the Church Bible on 1189. Just a reminder that Luke didn't put chapters. And uh, the chapters can be very helpful. If nothing else, I can tell you where to turn. And that's, that's helpful. Uh, but in this instance, I think it's a mistake to separate the first three verses of 8 from the end of 7. Because in this passage, we're being shown uh, true devotion. And in fact, Christ honors those who show true devotion to him. Not only in the end of 7, but then continuing into 8. And so we're shown the the 12 apostles who give up everything to follow Jesus, but they're not the only ones. We're shown these wonderful women from different stratas of society, a a formerly demon-possessed woman, the bottom tier, as well as in the, especially the verses we're looking at with the foot washing, uh, another woman at the bottom tier, a sinful woman. And we're also shown someone high up, the wife of an important official, And these women give what they have, which is probably very different amounts of money, but they give what they have to care for Christ and his apostles. They uh, they aren't in the seminary with the apostles, but they pay for the seminary. What a wonderful sign of devotion we find in the text here. So we're going to read those three verses with our main sermon text today. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. This is the word of Almighty God. Then one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus was at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. 
You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head. You, you gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I, the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now it came to pass afterwards that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it shows us Christ. Lord, we also pray that it will show us ourselves. And that seeing we will, we will be assured. Assured by the right things. Assured as we gaze on Christ alone. So may we hear him through his word this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just remind you that Luke begins by telling us how to read his book. That's a useful thing when someone tells you how to read their book. Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 tell us how you are to read Luke. And the, the answer is, to read it looking for certainty. Luke says, I have written this that you may be certain about Jesus. And so every, every week I try, before I start outlining the text as a whole, to simply ask myself, what am I supposed to be certain about this week? If we're going to be certain about Christ, often that's going to require us to be certain about ourselves as well. Talking about being certain about ourselves sounds weird, so I'm going to use a different word, clarity. If we're going to be certain about Christ, we also need clarity about ourselves. And this text especially would call us to have clarity about ourselves, to have clarity about your status in relationship to Christ. That if you have trusted, repented, and been united to Christ by faith, you should have clarity that you are given peace. A theological way to say that is, you should have assurance. 
Not assurance that you get when Christ returns, but assurance today. That the text would have you have clarity because of who Christ is. That if you have confessed your sins, you ought to be assured today. But the text also has a warning in it, doesn't it? If you haven't truly confessed your sins, if you don't have real clarity about your own hearts, then you ought to be warned. Warned that you may not know love after all. And that should be a frightening thought. And so this text not only challenges us to search our hearts and warns us potentially, but then if we find our hearts are humbled before the Lord and trusting only Him, then we should be assured. That means there's something in this text for everyone in this room, isn't there? So as we look at this, as we look at this, I want us to have something in our minds, a a statement I read in a commentary that I thought was so good. I'm going to read it now to you, and I may also end with it this morning. We'll see. One commentator writes of this passage before us, All real love toward Christ must be preceded by a deep consciousness of our own sinfulness and by the assurance that for Jesus' sake, our sins, however great they may be, are forgiven. Love of the Lord that is not founded upon these true foundational truths cannot be genuine or permanent. Okay, two foundational truths on which all true faith must be founded is what he's saying, and they are a consciousness of my own sin. And as the shorter catechism would put it, a comprehension or an understanding of the mercy of God in Christ. True repentance understands my sin and understands Christ's mercy. Think about that as we look at this passage before us this morning. First, let's look at Simon for a little, the Pharisee, the host in this passage. He really warns us, he teaches us that one may have an outward interest in Christ and not truly understand the gospel. An outward interest in Christ and not truly understand the gospel. Obviously, the Pharisee had an outward interest in Christ, didn't he? He threw a party, a banquet, and Christ is the invited guest. I I know sometimes in life we get um, trapped into inviting someone over for a meal, but that's not what was happening here. It's clear that this Pharisee planned the night and invited Jesus for some reason. Is it out of love and honor for Christ? Or something else? Whatever the motivation, it's clear he has an outward interest in this man, Jesus. And it looks like an important one. He, he threw a party. 
spent money, invited guests. But is it, is it out of love for Christ? Is it in a, a desire to honor him? Christ is the honored guest, but Christ makes clear in the passage that he has not been honored. Not by this man. Now, there are a couple of things in this text that are strange to our ears because of the culture in which we live and the culture in which they live. So let's think about a few of them real quick. One, have you ever noticed in the Gospels there seem to be a lot of gate crashers? Every time someone invites Jesus for a meal, someone else shows up and starts a conversation or does something. If it's Matthew the tax collector, somehow the Pharisees are standing around complaining about the meal. They're not part of it. They, they're just observing and complaining. If the Pharisees invite Jesus over, sinners show up. I, I, as a kid, I, I think I almost envisioned a text like this one as, you know, here's this woman doing stuff to Jesus, the guest, and maybe there's some bouncers trying to drag her away the whole time. That's not how their society worked. That society, you would have this party, it would be kind of in the, the courtyard of your house, and the doors would be wide open. Anyone was allowed to come. They weren't allowed to engage in conversation with you, and they weren't allowed to eat, but they could come and watch. And there was the table set up in the middle of the courtyard. It would be low to the ground. I'm, I'm sure you're all aware that low to the ground table. And they would sit on the cushions and lean against the table. And their feet would stick out behind them. And anyone in the community could come in and stand on the outskirts. And your feet would be closest to the gate crashers. But they could observe what was going on. They weren't supposed to engage in conversation. Weren't allowed to take food. There were no appetizers being offered to them. But they could come and look. Now, why would a culture have that system? It's not hard to figure it out, is it? Because our hearts, our hearts are the same way. We want people to know who we associate with. Right? Oh, we want the newspapers to be on hand to say, this person gave to charity. What are the newspapers doing there? If you're giving to charity, why does it matter? But we have the same hearts. It's the same motivation that led to this. You want the neighborhood to know just how important you are. Who was at his party last night? That traveling rabbi that everyone seems so excited about. And a lot of people didn't have Jesus over for dinner because he was only there for two nights. But Simon, Simon got him for one of those nights. It's a boasting type of thing, right? Or it could be. It's a cultural thing, and so you might not be boasting. It might just be this is what you grew up with. But it is geared towards pride. So here is this man. He has this party somehow. This sinful woman shows up. Why? Because she's allowed to watch. She's not allowed to touch. Allowed to watch. And here he has this internal conversation with himself. If Jesus knew what kind of woman was touching him right now, 
just proves that we're right about him. He's a facade. He's a charlatan. Because he doesn't know how wicked this woman is. And he's being tainted by association. And Jesus looks him straight in the eyes and says, I have something to say to you. I heard you. Some of you who are married, or maybe with a sibling, you've experienced this. Where you've been thinking something and the person makes eye contact and proves they know what you were just thinking. Of course, sometimes we think we've done that to someone and we're wrong. But Jesus wasn't, was he? He finishes the internal conversation. Simon, I have something to tell you. And in the process, he makes something very clear to Simon. Your outward interest in me, it doesn't fool me. Actually, it's not fooling anyone but you. Because I came in here and you didn't wash my feet, you didn't kiss my cheek, and you didn't anoint my head with oil. Three more things we have to think about, right? Because if you invite me over, please don't do any of those things to me. I don't want oil on my head. I don't want kissing going on. Thank you. Uh, But again, culturally... These were things that were expected. You're in the ancient Near East. The the ground's dusty. You're wearing sandals. Jesus is an itinerant preacher. He's traveling around all day. I know this sounds a little disrespectful, but it isn't. It's part of Christ's humanity that he, he experienced what you and I experienced. What do you experience in the summer when you run around in the backyard in bare feet? Stinky, dirty feet. Right? Kids, you run around without your shoes on and your parents make you maybe wash your feet when you come in even. Well, that that was the thing. And so if you invited a guest over, it was common courtesy to have someone there to wash their feet for them. Here's a man with outward interest in Christ, but how much honor does he give to his honored guest? Jesus doesn't just say, you didn't have a servant wash my feet. He says, you didn't even offer me water so I could wash my own feet. And I came in, I haven't been kissed. Again, if I come to your house, thank you, don't kiss me. But in their culture, it was more like our handshake. Some cultures around the world still do this, right? Kiss on either cheek. Men kissed men, women kissed women when you came into the house. There was nothing erotic about it. It was like the handshake or a hug. It was the thing you did when you had an honored guest. No kiss. No handshake. Maybe it would be closest to someone coming over your house and you don't even really greet them. Oh, and that's it. And then the oil on the head. That wasn't done to everyone, but an honored guest would receive oil. And there's a, there are actually examples in history of this period of time um, of even the poorest of people, when they had an honored guest over, taking a little olive oil, their cooking oil, and anointing the honored guest's head with the cheap oil. It was the thing you did for the honored guest. And look at the language Jesus uses again. He uses the most generic word, 
like saying, you didn't offer me the vegetable oil. You, di- you didn't anoint me with a little olive oil, your cooking oil. You didn't, couldn't even be bothered to spend a penny on a teaspoon of cooking oil to anoint my head in honor. And this woman broke her alabaster flask and put perfume on my head. He has an outward interest and no real honor, no real love. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus says to him, isn't it? Who will love him more? Well, I suppose. Ask me a hard one next time, Jesus. I suppose it's the one who was forgiven more. You can see that he doesn't get it yet. (sighs) Such a dumb question. Everyone knows the answer to this, Jesus. And Jesus flips it right on him. Well, you, you must not have been forgiven. Now, when Jesus says the one who loves little has been forgiven little, is he saying, well, Simon, yeah, she's a filthy sinner, but it's, a, it's okay you don't love me much because I get it. You don't have much sin. Makes sense. You wouldn't love me much. Is that what Jesus is saying? Of course not. What he's saying is, you, you are quite the sinner. You're not who you think you are. In fact, all your guests see that you don't even, you think you're so good, but you don't even do common social courtesy. <laughs> not even the socially expected courtesy. How good can you be? But you haven't repented. So you haven't been forgiven. Could Jesus say a worse thing to you than that? This is a horrible thing to say. It's true. Because Jesus is the one that reads hearts and minds. In fact, look at the way that Luke presents Simon's thoughts. He said to himself, if he knew this woman... And we could paraphrase Christ's response as being, Oh, Simon, I know her, and I know you. You just don't know yourself. You've convinced yourself you're so good. Everyone else sees how bad you are. I know you. Do you know yourself? Because he knows you. And even if, even if you trick the rest of us better, he reads the hearts and the minds. The Shorter Catechism talks about repentance to life. You, you've heard, I, I update one or two words. This is what it says, updated, the Tomlinson version. Repentance unto life is a saving grace where a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and understanding of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of a sin turn from it to Christ with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Those two things, those two things, a true sense of my own sin 
and an understanding that there is mercy from God in Christ. If you understand your sin and have turned to Christ, you'll love much, won't you? And that's where we turn then as we think about this woman. Think about this woman. What's her identity? It's a trick question, isn't it? Because the text gives us two identities for this one woman. Gives us the identity that everyone sees and the identity that God sees. The identity that everyone sees. She is a sinful woman. That could mean one of two things. Could mean she was a prostitute or it could mean that she just slept around a lot. sinful woman. In fact, Jesus even goes to say, you know what? (laughs) This woman, this woman has many sins. You're not wrong. You didn't mistake her for someone else. She has many sins. But is that her identity? Here she is. She has many sins. Is she aware of her sins? Of course, the text makes it clear she is. Why is she weeping? I think it's a combination of two things. The one is the awareness of her sins. She may have known a lot of men like that Samaritan at the well. But she's never known a man who loved her. You know what Jesus said just a day or two before, according to the Gospel of Matthew? In this region, Christ was preaching. And some of the words he was saying reside on some of your hearts daily. He says, come to me. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This woman might have been in that crowd. She may have heard those words. She may have never heard them from anyone else in her entire life. She weeps. Because she knows the depth of her sin. She isn't even worthy to kiss his feet. I think there's another thing, though, that's happening. Those who have been loved much, pardoned much, and we do love Christ because he first loved us. Those who have known that kind of pardoning love, love him. And remember that strange tradition. She's hanging out with all the other people, watching the feast. What a weird way to spend an evening. (laughs) It's like watching the cooking channel. The better the food, the more you want to eat. But you're not allowed to get up and get a snack. You just stand there with everyone else and you can smell it. What a... I'm glad we don't have that tradition. But that's where she's at, right? She's standing there. She's watching. What does she see? Remember the closest thing to her, to her vision? 
their feet. Here's Simon's feet, clean, no doubt, probably perfumed, all ready to be a, an honored host. And here's Jesus' feet, black and grimy with the work of the day, calloused from walking from city to city, healing the broken, probably smelly, dishonored. What's your response when you hear Christ dishonored? We have here her response. Weeping. Tears. Enough tears. How many tears does it take? It's like the old uh, Tootsie Roll question. How many tears does it take to wash someone's dirty feet? She's not misting up. Christ has been dishonored. And she weeps publicly, openly. She washes his feet, degrading herself. If you could degrade yourself any further in society, here's how you do it, woman. You wash his feet with your hair. I was mentioning this story this morning, and someone who has more hair than me at my breakfast table won't say who, said, that must have hurt, which is something I've never thought of. But it's certainly degrading, isn't it? Doesn't help your reputation to use your clean hair, no longer clean hair, to wash someone's dirty feet. This is what she did. Because Christ has been dishonored. What does understanding the mercy of God in Christ look like? This is it. Let the world scorn you, deride you, mock you. Who cares? The name of Christ must be praised. That's this woman. She loves much because she has known much love. They all see her identity as this wicked woman. I don't know if any of you remember in Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it. Some of you have read it. Some of you didn't like it. It's a bit on the nose. I get that. Christian. Oh, oh. Ignorant. It, it's a bit on the nose. I get you might not enjoy the book, and that's okay. It's not inspired. You don't have to like Pilgrim's Progress. But there's some wonderful lines in it. The one that every young boy loves when they hear the story. He's coming down into the, the valley and there, there's Apollyon, the devil, there to fight him with swords. Great scene. And now as an adult I realize the best scene is right before they fight. Do any of you remember what happens then? Satan, Apollyon, says to him, You're, you're a filthy sinner. God will never accept you. How could he accept you? He'll know what you did. Remember what Christian says in response? It's worth the price of the book. Christian says, All this is true and much more that you have failed to mention. <laughs> you didn't even list half of it. I'm so much worse than you think I am. But he says, 
The prince whom I now serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive, and I have obtained a pardon from my prince. When Satan tempts you to despair, is that how you respond? Or as the hymn writer says, upward you look and see him there, your prince. Your prince, from whom you obtain a pardon by his blood. You know, this woman didn't have the cross to look at yet. She only had the promises of God and the sermons of God through Christ our Lord. And she believed in him and received a pardon. And so we hear Christ's statement of her identity. This woman is forgiven. This woman is forgiven. Now, you might read that in the English and think it's saying that in that moment he is now forgiving someone. This is her conversion. But that's not how the Greek reads. This woman has known love and pardon. That's why she's here doing this. Christ is declaring her identity. She's a forgiven woman. That's her identity. Paul says the same thing in a different way. Her identity is in Christ. In him. Are you? Are you? Now, if you are, how should you walk out those doors this morning? The world and Satan will tempt you to despair. Things that Christ doesn't declare sin will be laid at your door as sinful. And the world will catch anything you do do that's a sin. How do you walk out these doors? When you hear the name of Christ disgraced and you want to honor him, but you know it's going to earn you enemies. How do you walk out this door? Do you hear Christ's voice to the woman? There are many doubters. Who is this to forgive sin? He can't forgive her. But how is she to walk out the doors? How are you? If you are in Christ, he says, your faith has saved you. Depart in peace. Depart in peace. All real love towards Christ must be preceded by a deep consciousness of our own sinfulness and by the assurance that for Jesus' sake, our sins, however great, may be and are forgiven. Love for the Lord that is founded upon these two foundations cannot, is not founded on these two foundations, cannot be genuine or permanent. But love that is founded on these foundations must be assured, must find peace in him.
Let's go.